Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWentworth.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Drew and Janie. Thanks, Ray. This is the Ray Wenderlich podcast. Janie Clayton. I am Drew Freeman. And this week we have brought in Mark Dalrymple. Mark is a longtime Unix Mac programmer. He's been in the industry for probably over 25 years as principal author on uh, Learn Objective-C on the Macintosh. Also the advanced Mac OS programming, the Big Nerd Ranch Guide. He is the co-founder of Cocoa Heads, the international Mac and iOS programming community. He's currently working for the Big Nerd Ranch and is co-creator of MusicJot, a music notation software for the iPad. Thanks for joining us tonight, Mark. Oh, it's my pleasure. So today you are going to give us a new insight into debugging, or not necessarily a new one, but I guess, um, how, how, how do you best put it? Well, it's called the universal troubleshooting process, which, as its name implies, is a step-by-step process that you can use to find problems in just about anything. Maybe it's hardware, maybe it's your automobile, maybe you're trying to track down a bug in some software. So it's something that I reach for if I've got a really hard bug. It's like, I really don't know how to approach this. It's a step-by-step process of approaching problems. And if I'm mentoring a younger programmer and they are thrashing around trying to figure out how to debug something. I introduce them to the universal troubleshooting process as a way to kind of, you don't have to invent everything when you're first learning how to debug. I like the fact that you also said that this is not just for programming, but it's a, it's a problem solving thing. So it has other applications, but I guess we're going to focus more on from, from the point of view of the developer. Yes. I originally just stumbled across troubleshooters.com, which is created by a guy named Steve Litt. He's the one who created this process, and it's a fairly odd site. He had this magazine that he wrote over the course like five or six years, and each issue of the magazine had a whole bunch of articles written by just one guy, him, of different applications of this troubleshooting process, usually in the context of automobiles or uh, stereo repair. So is Zen in the art of motorcycle <laughs> maintenance and stereo repair? Yes, it's a high quality uh, process. So this, this is an, a universally applicable process that can be applied to a lot of different like types of um, problems. Yes, and I gave a presentation on this at one of our Big Nerd Ranch Nerd Share times. And one of my friends who was uh, he drove nuclear reactors for the Navy, and he said that they had similar processes for you know, tracking down uh, problems with the reactor. That, that's the great thing about, about you know the pattern matching thing, where there are a lot of um, patterns that we have in, in programming that are broadly applicable to a lot of different types of other fields. So, like, I think you and I have talked a couple of times about like my my cross stitching and like how for me like it helped me be a better programmer because I was able to go in and kind of organize my stuff and a lot of the skills that I needed in order to get something accomplished there were directly applicable to programming. So I think it's really cool that we have this broad understanding that there are problems that are exist in the programming space that exist in other spaces and that there are patterns that you can apply to each space to get something actually like working that aren't just specific to programming. Yeah, the cross-stitch thing I love, it's uh, when you mentioned that the cross-stitches were a lot like um, fragment shaders in 3D programming. They are. You're, 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 you're shading each pixel and figuring out what color everything's supposed to be. <laughs> For the record, it's nice to know that the entire crew today cross-stitches. I'll drink to that. <laughs> 
Uh, I don't cross stitch, but uh, my wife Charlotte does, and she's world class. Literally has won awards and has had her work on uh, the cover of Piecework magazine a couple of times. Nice. All right. So, all right. I am confronted with a problem. I I am looking at a problem in my code. And I'm staring at the screen going, great, now what? (laughs) All right. So step one is get the attitude, sometimes also known as prepare. So you need to convince yourself that, yes, you can do this. No, if you're new at this debugging thing, don't worry that if you're not fast as others, no, debugging is a skill that you need to to practice. But convince yourself that it's just a bug. Eventually, I can figure it out. And also get yourself mentally and physically prepared. Like if I'm facing a tough bug, then I may clean my desk so I don't have any distractions near me. And if you've just like come off an all-night Jägermeister bender, then you may want to take a nap first before getting into your problem. So are we basically suggesting that if the bug is probably going to involve threading, we should burn incense? And make appropriate sacrifices. <laughs> and, and pick up enough holy water. <laughs> there is not enough holy water for a deadlock. Well, I, I think that that's a really good point to bring up that you know, trying to debug things is very difficult. And that's a, a psychological and physical process because, um, right, I just started a new gig this week and I was responsible for building a feature. And the previous job that I was doing before was trying to figure out some really complicated weird bug in the code and for me it was a lot more cathartic and happy to go and build this new feature and kind of be able to create something than it was to look at this giant like you know spaghetti mess of code and go somebody who didn't know what they were doing wrote this and I have to figure out what they were thinking in order to figure out what's wrong and that was very exhausting I would say that most of the bugs that I have uh, most of the really horrifically scary bugs, the bugs I don't want to face, are bugs in codes that I've inherited. I think it is always daunting. Um, you work in a major, major company. I, I've spoken that I worked on on Office for the Mac, but that's such an old code base that you inevitably will have programmers that are younger than the code they may be looking at in some areas. So you have to deal with the fact that you're going to inherit code that you'll have to fix. That's scary daunting. I did very much like your, your comment about how like when you're a beginner, you, you you don't have to reinvent the wheel every single time you do something. So a couple of years ago, you posted either on, on Twitter or Facebook a, a link to a uh, an article talking about why programming is hard. And it talks about like when you're, you're first starting and you're learning like for loops and whatever, there's a lot of handholding and a lot of, you know, like um, positive affirmation about like, you hey, you did something right. You got this to build. This is awesome. This is great. And then you, 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 you get into... You like the the cliffs of calamity where you realize that you have to like debug things and that you have to know github and that there's all this other stuff that you have to do and that leads into the desert of despair where you you feel like you're never <laughs> going to actually like understand anything and I, I feel like 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 getting into like your first programming job you think oh i'm gonna go and i'm gonna write all of this code but then you encounter the fact that you have to debug other people's code and you're really not equipped to deal with that so okay i've got myself mentally focused. I, I I am prepared to face this miasma of disaster. <laughs> Mark, lead me on to the next step. All right. Step two is making a damage control plan. This is more useful with actual hardware, but also for software systems as well. So you try to figure out what can go wrong while I'm trying to fix this thing. 
So if you need access to a production system, is your database backed up? Or can you do things on a staging or a QA server? Um, if you're not using source code control, then you are a very bad person. So you need to make sure that you can thrash around in your code and not destroy the only copy of it. And also some other considerations like business considerations. What happens if we don't fix this bug or if it's not fixable in a reasonable amount of time? Like, is this a bug that's causing lost revenue or maybe it's a showstopper for a big conference unveiling, for instance? So you try to figure out, all right, what can go wrong if I screw up a database? Can I fix it? What's going to happen if I can't fix this bug? I think I'd also add in there, my messing around in this bug, what kind of splatter pattern could I leave? Um, you know, you get into the concept of I, I want to find so specifically the I, I'm hoping that I can find that it's a one plus one that should be a one minus one so I can make a one character fix so I know that hopefully I don't break other things in the process of fixing this. <laughs> All right, then step three is getting an accurate symptom description, which most of us will go is like, ha, yeah, right. But it's one of those things that you no, know, it crashes versus, you know, I three finger double tap on this image view while it's fetching new tweets. Those two descriptions, the second one you'd much rather have when you're tracking down uh, a bug. Uh, if you can contact the reporter, then you can ask them to be more specific. And when, when I'm reporting bugs, I like to use a screen recorder, like ScreenFlow. So I've filed a couple of Xcode radars uh, over the last couple of years. <laughs> a couple or a couple hundred? I'm up to 160 now. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, and pretty much all of them have video evidence of the misbehavior. So it's no, I've, it's very useful when I see a recording. Maybe the user is spastic when I'm expecting them to be slovenly, or maybe it's the other way around, or I see some icon is in the wrong state, which they may not have noticed. So getting screenshots, getting screen recordings, and when you're writing bugs, the more information you can give the poor person on the other end of the bug reporting system, the better. I know there's an SDK you can add to an iOS app now that you shake and it'll actually put you into sort of a bug reporting mode where you can take a picture and doodle on the screen and they'll send it. Is it? I think it's Instabug. And I think I recently saw it pop up in Facebook, but it, it basically is a way to have direct contact with the bug reporter. It's, it's a nice system. Whoa, that's pretty cool. <laughs> I can make a note of that because I could make use of that. I, I'd been using it in my own personal app, and then I, uh, I, I and then I suddenly saw the features show up in Facebook, and I'm like, I know where you got that functionality. <laughs> All right, on to step four, which is reproduce the symptom. So, when you take your car to the repair place, this is the part that at least I always dread is it's making this terrible screeching noise until I get it to the mechanic. So if the mechanic can make it make that horrible screeching noise, great. Oh, going to the doctor and, and it is like it has cleared up the second you get to the doctor. <laughs> so it's the Warner Brothers dancing frog phenomenon where it dances for you, but it dances for no one else. That is that is an amazing <laughs> analogy. It, it, it is one, it, it's one froggy evening. It's like, look, my frog dances and talks right up until you look at it. I got to make use of my liberal arts degree somehow. 
<laughs> Actually, the, the, the best term that I've heard for the bug that is there until you test for it is the Heisen bug. Oh, very nice. My own personal mantra is, if I can reproduce the problem, it's dead. <laughs> because if you can reproduce it at will, you can just start slicing and dicing through the world and uh, hone in on it. And if you can't reproduce it, don't give up. It's going to be harder if you have an intermittent bug, but no, keep on trying, keep on recording information, and eventually you're, you're going to get it. Mm -hmm. Next step. All right. Do appropriate corrective maintenance. So for automobiles, it'd be like make sure the gas cap is on tight and clean the battery terminals. If you're having performance problems on your website, make sure like, you've vacuumed your database, um, fix your warnings, and also in Xcode, purge your build folder a couple of times just in case you have some kind of stray piece of compiled Swift flotsam and jetsam that's uh, making the world weird. You know, I still want a, a command in Xcode that is no really no really obliterate builds. I keep feeling like, like, like whenever people tell you to clean your project, it's kind of like the IT crowd was like, hello, IT, you try turning it off and on again. I teach a beginning iOS courses every now and then, and seeing the look of just utter shock on somebody's face when they have a compiler problem that doesn't make sense, I tell them to clean their build folder, and they build, and then it builds fine. Magic. I, I, I have more than one solved problems by blowing away derived data. Yeah, I, I, have a, I have a link to that in my, my directory, so I can just click on it and just go, boink. As part of the Xcode waving the dead chicken over things, uh, deleting that folder, restarting Xcode, restarting your device, rebooting your Mac. So are, are we voodoo priests or are we, we Catholic uh, priests doing doing you know the exorcism rites over our computers? Oh, that is a very good question. Column A, column B. <laughs> <laughs> Since I say that we're still programming with stone knives and bear skins, I'll, I'll go for the voodoo shaman. Very good, Mr. Spock. So step six is narrow it down to the root cause. And most of the talks that I give, most of the blog posts I've written, and actually where most of our tooling is oriented on this particular step. So things like using the scientific method. I've got a taxonomy of bugs that I also call the levels of pain. I've got a hierarchy of blame to know where to go looking in code to where this bug may be lurking. Ways of asking questions, techniques of caveman debugging. I've got voices in my head which discuss the problem, so I use Voodoo Pad to capture the question and answer and take notes. Now, have you reached the level of pain where you, you have your, your hand in the box and you're doing the human test and they, they have the gum jabar at your throat? Tell me of the waters of your homeworld, UML. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're such nerds. And you can also uh, get smarter friends that have come in handy. I ask a question, you know, if Mike Ash is in the area, sometimes he'll respond. And I was involved in a problem that somebody had on IRC and Mike Ash eventually tracked it down to a compiler problem when you had Clang generated code and a GC generated and a GCC generated framework. Okay, just for those keeping track, he's mentioned Mike Ash and he's mentioned IRC. So for those of you, you can mark those off on your bingo card. <laughs> oh, they're not taking drinks? <laughs> I am. Yeah, but this is the stage where 
hack the code, slash the code, cut out chunks of it, put in early returns, just try to figure out where in this massive code you have the problem may be found. Go to fail. Uh, one of the, the comments that a, a colleague at Microsoft used to, to tell me, because I, I was still fairly young in my in my work at that point, was let the compiler do some of the work for you. Remove a command and see see what pops up. So you can see who's calling it, where's it being called from, and, and maybe that will help you begin to find where you're looking. And I've successfully used a cat stomp on the keyboard, just throw in random characters to see, is this file even being compiled? Or is this chunk of the file conditionally compiled out? So I don't waste my time looking in code, which is not getting built. But fundamentally, this is where you're binary searching through your code base. If you can come up with questions that bifurcate your code into two parts, implicate one part or exonerate another part, then that reduces your search area. And if you can successfully binary search something, it won't survive for long. Great, your problem solving now has O notation. Okay, so you've done this hacking and slashing and you've actually found the problem. This is where step seven and step eight come into play. Repair or replace the defective component, like an engine sensor or a tube in an old stereo, and also test. This is where you need to understand things, like understand what actually caused the bug. So you'd roll back your source code control, go back to your code to where it was before, apply the fix, make sure it works. And then this is where you write your tests, land your stuff in source code control, and let the uh, continuous integration tell you if you've broken the world. Do you find that perhaps adding in more unit tests around the broken area helps at that point? Or do you hope at that point that you've already successfully unit tested that area? Seeing as how a lot of code these days doesn't have tests, if you can take the opportunity to create a test, go for it. If you already have pretty good test coverage, then you can figure out why didn't the tests catch this and maybe write other tests or get rid of a bunch of tests that are not really doing anything. So we've mentioned um, unit tests and unit tests are one tool that you can use for like debugging to kind of just make sure that everything works the way that it's supposed to. So like I'm really interested because there's a lot of um, tools that exist for debugging. There's like um, there's LLDB, there's Dtrace, there's a lot of different things that exist, but a lot of them aren't particularly well documented. And like me coming in a couple of years ago as a beginner, like, you know, people go, oh, debugging is the most important thing in the world. I'm like, well, how do I debug? You use print print statement. And it's like, oh, you, you, you use log statements. And I'm like, I'm like okay, but there, there has to be more than that. And I feel like everybody kind of knows that we're supposed to know a bunch of these things, but like people don't really dedicate any time to it. And a lot of them are like, you know, this weird black magic voodoo that, you know, people learned 30 years ago and that knowledge has been lost to time because of, you know, reasons. Well, I'm still a huge fan of caveman debugging. That's what I call printf. Uh, or print statement uh, debugging. Uh, but a lot of this is you know, word of mouth, tribal stories. So you, you pair with somebody and they pull up LLDB or the um, Xcode memory cycle debugger and like, oh, wow, what is that? What did you do? And then 
It's like, oh, I did this. So you pass it on to one person. If you're lucky, somebody may write a blog post, which then goes obsolete after two years because the tooling changes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's not a really good solution to that because the tools change, the techniques change. From a caveman point of view, I've been playing with uh, Swifty Beaver, which is basically sort of a plug-in, very similar to the Java slash Unix kind of debug levels. And it actually will uh, throw a lot of very clear log statements out to both your log to a file and actually up to a server so that you can call that back remotely if you have a customer who said I had an issue and then you can basically turn on their device and and Swifty Beaver will catch a lot of of log statements. Yeah, that thing's actually an API uh, fundamentally so that's something that you would need to design and implement like what needs logging, what is a, a something that we can effectively log and what is just junk. And when I think of caveman debugging, it's what is this one particular thing that's going wrong? What is the flow of control that's going here? It's like, I have a very specific question, throw in some print statements, figure it out, and then then they go away. That's kind of interesting to me because like, like you have to kind of build in your, your brain this entirely like procedurally generated world of how everything in your application actually works. And that, that that's very like, you know, mentally, computationally expensive to kind of like, uh, try to try to build up this, this giant like like mental structure in your head. And, and that just requires a lot of uh, focus and concentration. And people kind of don't really understand that. Well, that's why I keep a voodoo pad open if I'm tracking down a really difficult bug is so I can get stuff out of my head if it's not immediately relevant. And so effectively, after step eight, you've fixed the problem. When I first encountered the universal troubleshooting process, this next step took me completely by surprise. Take pride in your solution. I mean, we are ambulatory talking chunks of meat. Validation is really good for our sanity. So there's this guy that I worked with at a consulting gig that in his cube, he had Christmas lights. And every time he solved a significant problem, fixed a big bug, implemented a a big new feature, he would plug in the light and they would start blinking. And so everybody knew that, ah, cool, Jeff just figured out something neat. And we would go to his cube and he would talk about the problem, demonstrate his new thing, discuss his architecture he came up with, which was getting validation with his peers. And also it was a brilliant communication mechanism. It's like, hey, I fixed this problem. It shows these issues. People are coming here to talk about it. I can now like person to person explain what's going on because group emails, things posted to Slack, like, hey, we have this problem. Most folks generally just ignore that kind of stuff. But if you get it face to face, person to person, then it just might stick. So he was implementing the casino effect. Yay, somebody won. Except without the cash. Well, it was it was cash. It was just C-A-C-H-E. <laughs> Ooh, nice. Oh, that's going to leave a mark. See, now, I've been working in, in, in cube farms and in offices where the developers are all just really quiet and they work on their bugs and it drives me nuts because I'm, I, I'll work on one of those bugs for like a day or two trying to track it down. And I am one of those people who will sit there in the cube farm when I look at that line of code and I go, oh my God, that's it. That's the bug. And when I run the test and it works, I will be the one who goes, yes, and I'll jump up and everybody looks at me and, and I just deal with the fact that I'm old and weird, but I don't mind because that's my, it, it's my dragon and I vanquished it. You just need to use Christmas lights because they're awesome. And then step 10 is kind of boring. It's prevent future occurrences of the problem. Maybe add a new automated test. Maybe your development procedures need an update. 
Um, or maybe just have a coworker that needs some re-education if he's recreating bugs which we've fixed before. You, you put the comment in there, do not remove this line of code or, or it will cause nuclear devastation and kill us all. Yeah, that that's assuming people read documentation. Which they don't. No. <laughs> I love this. I'm going to probably print out these lines and put them in my work area so I can stare at them. So, okay, so we, we've gone over some troubleshooting on, and you, you've given us this this kind of, you know, 12-step program about how you can go from a, a healthy, functional, well-adjusted person to someone who is able to go and fix bugs. Can you kind of give just some, like, you know, advice to somebody who wants to get better at this about, like, how, what, what they should focus on and, and what their, their real goals should be in, in this regard? It's like playing a musical instrument. You just have to do it a bunch. So fix a lot of bugs, volunteer to be that person that everybody goes to for tracking down bugs, find open source projects, look at their issue tracker, track down problems in in their code. So it's one of those things that's kind of complicated, takes a lot of brain power, but after you kind of figure out your riffs, your scales and your arpeggios and your weird little no melodies that it's like okay i've seen this before this is no longer a hard problem or i've seen this thing before but not exactly but i'm going to approach it in the same kind of way either with breakpoints or the user interface uh view debugger or caveman debugging mark this is uh <laughs> this is something that plagues plagues and is a joy and a terror for each and every one of us and i am so thrilled that you gave all this information to us because as i said i'm going to put this up on my wall because just having that sort of the equivalent of a cat where they hang in there saying take a drink Get ready. Go face it. This is this is really good stuff, and it's not just for code. And I think that's really great. I really want to thank you for that. Oh, my pleasure. I when I first discovered this process, it it was completely enlightening of just a formalized way of approaching problems. Of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Derek Zoolander's advanced debugging book. It just came out from Ray Wenderlich. Uh, it's a really fantastic book. And if you want voodoo, there's there's some really wonderfully scary stuff that he, that he digs up. Because once you start plugging around in things, you, you discover that you have access to a lot underneath the hood. So for the second half of the show today, Janie is going to be talking to us about random number generation. Um, and for, for lack of a better term, if I'm right, it's like what is real and what is sort of mostly kind of real, but not actually when it comes to random numbers. Is that right? So I, I, I want to start out a little bit by explaining about why I wanted to talk about this and how I became interested in it. So um, like about a year and a half ago, so the, the games that I like to play on my phone tend to be um, adaptations of German style board games. So I have an app for Settlers of Catan. And um, if anybody's familiar with Settlers of Catan, you have a bunch of different um, properties that are on the board that are associated with numbers between 2 and 12, except for 7. And so generally, like, like probability wise um like you know besides seven like six and eight are the, the numbers that are most likely to come up if you roll two dice together so like i would go and i would like set up all of my little colonies and settlements and stuff on on like the, the eights and the sixes on the board and they like n- literally never came up i would get a lot of fives a lot of nines a lot of like elevens a lot of really weird numbers and like it just it felt like the whole application wasn't really working properly because you weren't getting a, a normal distribution of numbers that you would expect based on the properties that were available if you rolled two die together. I'm not going to Vegas to play craps with that thing. <laughs> 
actually got me really interested in like how we actually like create random numbers because you know, you have like when you're a beginning programmer, one of the things that they have you do is you know, like you know you emulate how to do a die, and there's always these like arc for random uniform where you have like blah 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 plus one, and you get something between one and six. And so I was just kind of curious about like where does this come from? Is this genuinely random? Like how does this actually work? So I went and kind of looked into the arc for random algorithm that is used to do number generation. So one thing that's kind of interesting about random numbers is the fact that we don't really, we're not good at creating random numbers. We create things that we think are random, but randomness is very different from how we feel randomness actually is. So like randomness means that you might get like, you know, like like four sixes in a row. It's, it's highly improbable, but it's something that happens. And if you as a human being are going in and entering what you think are random numbers, you're not going to have a lot of repeats. You're going to, you know, have a couple of, of numbers that are disproportionately, like, favored over others, you know, based on where they are in your little keypad, and just we're not really equipped to go and create random numbers. And since we're not really create equipped to create random numbers, neither is the computer, because we tell the computer what it's supposed to do. So I was just really, like, fascinated by this idea about how we emulate randomness in programming when it's something that we just don't really understand how to do. One of the really cool things that Apple has introduced that is available to us is in Gameplay Kit, and that's the Gameplay Kit randomization architecture. And, like, you don't have to be creating a game in order to take advantage of the randomness architecture, but they've included a couple of different types of randomness that you can include in your application. So, um, one of them is just the normal ARC4 random. My issue that I had when I was playing the game and all of the different numbers were kind of, like, not behaving the way that I was expecting them to, there's a way of being able to fix that using a different randomness algorithm that's available in Gameplay Kit. Can you just really quickly, because you keep mentioning ARC4 random, can you give a quick summary for those who haven't gone there yet about what ARC4 random is and, you know, is it real random? Okay, so ARC4 random um, is if you're like going and you're learning introductory iOS stuff and you're you're asked to generate a random number, you're told to you know enter this weird command that says ARC4 random. So I was kind of curious about where ARC4 random came from. Um, so I also I wrote I, I read a book recently called the the Code Book by Simon Singh where it was talking about uh, cryptography and how um, we encrypt messages. There's a a prominent um, well known uh, established um, encryption in programming, though it's RSA encryption. So the guy, uh, that, that was named after a group of people whose initials were R, S, and A. And the guy whose initial was R was the one that came up with the ARC4 random algorithm. He did that in 1987. And at that time, it was considered to be like an unbreakable encryption algorithm that generated random keys. But then um, at a certain point, somebody uh, reverse engineered the algorithm and in 1994, they published it in a, a hacker magazine and they completely destroyed that particular method for encryption because they, they exposed all of the source code and how everything in the encryption algorithm actually worked. So it still works really well as a randomization algorithm but you can't use it for encryption because it's been completely like you know blown up and everybody knows how to go back and like you know reverse engineer it. So this has been kind of like our our, our default general like go to randomization algorithm in iOS. Arc4 came from, so um, the the person who created it was uh, Ron Rivest and he was part of RSA security and part of that was the RC4 cipher which was part of this the security trademark that they had and so when 
1994, it was produced and reverse engineered and completely broken. Um, like RC4 had already been trademarked, so it couldn't be used. So instead of it being RC4, it's alleged RC4. So you get ARC4, which I thought was kind of cool. So this has been kind of our, our default randomization algorithm for a really long time with iOS because before we had like gameplay kit, this was just kind of like the, the easiest way to go in and, and create some kind of random number. So this these aren't genuinely random numbers. This is a pseudo-random number generation, which means that there's some giant lookup table that has a lot of random values in it, and um, there is what is called a seed, where you, you tell it to pick something. Like you can pick like, you know, the date and time or whatever, It'll just pick some arbitrary place in this lookup table to start using in order to to look up all of the different random numbers you're trying to generate. So like it's possible if you're using the same seed that you'll get the exact same results over and over and over again because it's referencing the same areas in this lookup table. Does that table also wrap around on itself? In other words, if I kept asking for enough numbers, would it come back to the top of the table again? Probably. Okay. But like this this is kind of a, like this is how a lot of our random number generation is is created because we as human beings aren't really good at dealing with randomness and so therefore neither are computers. So there's ways of getting genuinely random data from like atmospheric data and putting it in a lookup table but like as a computer it's basically impossible to write an algorithm telling it to genuinely come up with genuinely random numbers. It has to come from some random source that exists in nature like like atmospheric information. I never thought of just doing a, a net query to say so what is the wind speed right now in Tacoma? Just a random number to seed. So like like so that that's the arc for random algorithm. So I one of the things that I encountered was that like because randomness is genuinely random, like I was getting a lot of weird off values that didn't really fit in with the way that I felt like my application was supposed to work. So there's another algorithm that you can use in the gameplay kit that's a Gaussian random distribution, which kind of goes in and it kind of tries to smooth things out. So like it makes sure that you have a higher distribution of, you know, like eights and sixes as opposed to like, like threes and elevens. Because even though it's, it, when things are entirely random and you can get a lot of really weird like information, like it tries to kind of like, like, like smooth things out a little bit. So you're more likely to kind of see a better distribution of the things that you expect to see. So even you're making it less random in order to make it feel like it's working the way that it's supposed to be and it's genuinely random. Yeah, it's, it's, it sounds like it's faker random to feel like more real fan random. Yeah, so it's like real life. <laughs> <laughs> and then there is one other um, random source that I wanted to talk about, and that's the Merson Twister random source. That one is a far better randomization algorithm, but because it is far better, it includes it, it, it's very computationally expensive. It requires a lot of it requires more time, it requires more resources, and a lot of times, if you're doing something that doesn't require a lot of computation power, that isn't necessarily necessary, and just um, and again, as like just an FYI, like none of these algorithms exist in Gameplay Kit are applicable or useful in cryptography. These have all been um, broken by somebody. Um, they're good for um, creating random numbers in games and for things that aren't really necessary for encryption. Like I said, there's there's three different ways of being able to create random numbers in Gameplay Kit depending on what it is that that you need. So there's one that's very like that that is less random and but it is is very fast and not very computational 
computationally expensive, and there's one that is incredibly random, but it requires a lot more compute power, and it requires a lot more resources, and it may not necessarily be useful for whatever it is that you're trying to do. So, like, another aspect of, of Gameplay Kit that I wanted to bring up was um, about a year ago, I started working on a game, and I was looking to create um, a deck of cards that I would need to shuffle in a random order and then, like, deal to players. And I found the Gameplay Kit and all of the different uh, random source algorithms that are available in Gameplay Kit, they all use arrays. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to make my little deck of cards into an array because I can use all of the um, these GK random source algorithms that Apple has created for me in Gameplay Kit. And I got a huge amount of backlash from people for using arrays for a deck of cards. I was told that I should have created a stack or a queue in Swift. And I was just kind of like, well, why would I go and create these things? Because creating them means that not only do I have to maintain them, but also I can't then use a bunch of stuff that Apple has gone and created for me. Because going and creating all these random number generation algorithms, that's that's kind of complicated. And like, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to create a custom data structure that doesn't take advantage of things that Apple already gives you for free. Also, a deck of cards seems to be somewhat of an array. Yeah, that's exactly. pretty straightforward. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's like, I want the top five cards. Give me card zero through card four. But I just, I, I feel kind of like like we, in in the programming community, we're trying to make things more complicated than they have to be. I think like arrays are a perfectly good data structure and it can be used in a variety of different resources. And I think that it's really like interesting that Apple chose to make all of these different gameplay kit, like algorithms algorithms only applicable as functions on an array. Like, we clearly, like, if Apple thought that we should have had, you know, like, stacks and queues and all of this other stuff, they would have made these applicable to those data structures, but they made them applicable to arrays. So to me, as a, a non-computer science person, that seems to me like arrays are perfectly fine for most anything that I would like to be using them for. <laughs> But it just, it just was interesting to me because, like, throughout human history, we've had a lot of, like, you know, problems of trying to figure out how to create genuine randomness because we're very good at pattern matching and we're, we, we have very distinct ideas about how we think that the world is supposed to be and we imprint them on the way that we interact with the world. So, like, for us, it's incredibly difficult to create random distributions of noise and numbers and other stuff because we don't, we tend to think that, you know, having clusters and having things that are too close and having too much repetition and other things is not an indication of randomness when that is something that is totally a part of randomness. And if you don't have those, then it's indicative that we've interfered with that randomness. It's interesting from a philosophical point of view, considering uh, some of the the, the model development in, in Core ML, uh, where you're bringing these models that you've taught through some sense of random sampling, whether or not the randomness that we're introducing there may be possibly tainting the process of teaching these models. Possibly. But I just, I feel like, like, because um, the, all of these, these random um, shuffling algorithms exist in gameplay kit that, like, most people haven't really dug into that because, you know, like, like nobody, nobody hires you to, to learn, learn scene kit or sprite kit or any of the, the cool, fun game algorithm stuff that Apple has available. But, like, having a familiarity with these randomness algorithms is really genuinely, like, helpful and they can be used in something other than games, just, just not cryptography. Seems like one of those things that you really think should be on the, the, the base list of things that you should be learning when you're learning iOS programming is here. 
these are the the pool of things you want to pull from if you need random. Well, I just I'm I'm interested in the weird little like like fun edge casey type things because to me that's what iOS is. iOS is you know this this neat collection of lots of you know like user interface stuff and graphic stuff and math stuff that that you know is really really cool. But like like you know most most of the normals aren't really aware of it and and they're not really like into you know figuring out how to create random number generation. So for me like like I just think it's awesome that this is something that exists in the Apple frameworks, and I would love it if more people were aware of the fact that this exists and that they can use it in their applications. Yeah, because Arc 4, is that down in, in the Darwin modules? Yep, it's got a man page and everything. Yeah, I, I think you, you sum it up right there when you say it has a man page. If it's if it's in the frameworks, you go to the documentation. If it's down in Darwin and down in the Unix level, you're going through the man pages to look it up. Well, one of the things that being able to seed your random number generator can come in handy is you can get a reproducible sequence of random numbers, which can help with debugging stuff. So if you have something which gets triggered by a particular sequence of random numbers, always start off with the same seed and your problem can become easier to track down. And that's a really good point, because I know um, a lot of issues that people have with debugging, especially when you're having things that are random, it's like, oh, this is completely unpredictable, and we have no idea how to reproduce this. And it's like, well, if you if you know what the seed is that this was created from, you can totally reproduce it. And sometimes just stub out your random number source and always return 17. Just return the same thing each time, and that can also make your debugging life easier. So sometimes it's actually a good thing to not necessarily have fully random. This way we can actually have reproducible, replayable random. Yep. As I said before, if you can reproduce a bug, it's dead. If you can reproduce a bug, it's dead. I've had many a bug that I've not been able to to uh, to kill, even though I can make it happen. But like, like, like we, we, we as human beings, again, like I, I've been saying this a few times, like, like we have difficulty with randomness. So sometimes we attribute randomness to things that we ne- shouldn't necessarily attribute them to. So there's a, a book, Fooled by Randomness, by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. And you have people like, like Carl Jung, who are talking about, you know, the theory of synchronicity that things were so seemingly so coincidental that you know they must be the act of God. So like we, we just we as human beings we look for you know patterns and meaning in the things that we see and we, we have a lot of trouble with dealing with randomness because we need to find some meaning in the things that we are interacting with. We have to find a pattern. We have to feel like there's there's some reason that things exist the way that they do. Now the the arc for random requires a seed. The the calls in game kit for those randoms, do they require a seed, or are those basically self-seeding themselves? Those are abstracted away by Apple. So Apple, they, they do require a seed, but Apple takes care of that for you, so you don't see it. You don't have to do any of the seeding techniques if you use the um, GK random algorithms that are implemented by Apple, because the the wonderful engineers at Apple have already taken care of that for you. Yay, self-seeding random. If you're doing this in C++, then you are you are a masochist, and you do have to deal with that. You don't have to say this in C++. If you're using C++, masochist. But it's just it's something that like like that you you would need to do if you if you were responsible for you know creating all of this on your own. But like Apple is very good at creating these wonderfully nice wrapped you know frameworks that go in and abstract away a lot of you know these these nasty bits away from you. And you know like they they, they want to make sure that you you know it, like you, you don't need to know what you're doing. And so they'll go in and make sure you have a different seed every time you you run this algorithm. Yeah, if you choose your own seed, sometimes you can come up with very subtle problems. Like I had one where I was seeding the random number generator with the Unix time, which has a one second granularity. 
well, it turned out that this thing I was working on maybe could be run more than one or two times within the same second. So instead of getting completely random runs every single time, every now and then there'd be like two or three runs that seemed to be an absolute lockstep just because independently launched processes had the same time, which had the same seed. Yeah, I was, I, I typically pull a milliseconds from, you know, for an iOS app, when, when app returns to foreground, I'll pull the milliseconds at that time and, and use that to reseed. When I'm using Arc 4, when I, I'm typically using Arc 4, I'll be honest, I didn't even realize that GameKit had the random number generator. So this is this is important for me I, or anybody else who didn't know that. You know, there's no way to say it, but but that is some really great random information, Janie. I'll use it to um, access my random access memory. And again, Mark will be back later uh, this season with some more information. Mark, thank you also for coming out. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that will tie things up for this episode of the Ray Wenderlich podcast. As always, you can find us online, raywenderlich.com. If you have any comments, you can email us at podcast at raywenderlich.com or make comments in the forums. But until next time, I am Drew Freeman with Janie Clayton, and we're going to send it back to the Wizard of the Emerald Castle. Ray, back to you. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, and don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.